0: The following podcast includes explicit language, not restricted to words beginning with F, S, B, and Q. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of October 13th, 2020. On this week's show, we'll talk about Costas Antetokounmpo. Talen Horton Tucker and the other members of the Los Angeles Lakers who got some help from LeBron James and Anthony Davis and won the 2020 NBA Bubble Finals four games to two over the surprising Miami Heat We'll also discuss Dak Prescott, Alex Smith, and the moral dilemma of watching NFL players suffer gruesome on-field injuries and then returning from those injuries. And finally, we'll assess the French Open, where Rafael Nadal of Spain won his ridiculous 13th French title, and 20th major and teenager Iga Swiatek of Poland won her first professional tournament. I'm the author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. I'm in Washington, D.C. Joining me from Palo Alto, California, is Slate staff writer and Slow Burn
1: Season 3 host, Joel Anderson. What's up, Joel? Good, man. How you doing? Doing all right. I had my first Carvel ice cream cake this weekend, by the way. Did you have Fudgy the Whale? Is that a kind of Carvel ice cream cake? Yeah, Fudgy the Whale. And I think Fudgy the Whale was the one, if you
0: flip it upside down, it was Santa Claus at the holidays they use the same mold
1: you know what i was too busy cutting into it to know exactly what the shape was
0: i do a mean tom carvel impersonation he did local commercials in new york when i was growing up this is tom carvel come on down get pudgy the (laughs) whale
1: Wait, is Carvel like some sort of local creamery or something like that?
0: It was. In, I think it started in New York. Tom Carvel was actually Tom Carvelis, some Greek okay. dude who started an ice cream store.
1: Oh, um, of course, you know the 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 background on that one.
0: <laughs> Welcome to my world. Josh Levine is off this week, but if you miss him, you can buy his book *The Queen* in paperback and listen to *Slow Burn* season four, filling in for Josh. From Bethesda, Maryland, not far from where I am, is Louisa Thomas. She's a staff writer at the New Yorker, the co-editor of Losers: Dispatches from the Other Side of the Scoreboard, and the co-author with her husband, the former NFL lineman John Urschel, of Mind and Matter: A Life in Math and Football. Welcome back to the show, Louisa. Great to have you.
2: Delighted to be here. Looking forward to a uh, socially distancing someday in our my new neighborhood. Great to have you on the show and in.
3: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW report void, prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: LeBron James and the LA Lakers closed down the bubble on Sunday, running away with the NBA Finals in a game six blowout of the Miami Heat. The Lakers' title clinching route was an anticlimactic cap of what Dan Devine of the Ringer called the most chaotic, unprecedented, and unforgettable season in NBA history. It'd be hard to disagree. The NBA postponed its season for four months because of the pandemic, had its first wildcat strike for racial justice in recent memory, and watched its presumptive favorites, the Bucks and the Clippers, implode in the conference semifinals. The most predictable thing about the NBA was how it ended this season, with LeBron James and the Lakers as champions, him for the fourth time and the Lakers for record-tying 17th time. Now, Louisa, your lead for the New Yorker was the 2019... Twenty NBA season ended as everyone always knew it would and like Buena Vista, Florida in October with J.R. Smith taking off his shirt. But other than shirtless J.R. Smith, what will you remember most from this one-of-a-kind basketball season?
2: I don't think any of us are going to forget that disruption in the season for a long, long time, really a disruption in the sports world. But aside from that, in some ways, I think it's fitting that my lasting impression of the end of it is going to be Jr. Smith because mm. I think there's something about the concentrated format and the fact that everyone was there that really provided a showcase for some of the league's most vivid personalities, especially among its superstars. It seemed like every week there was a new, um, not a new, an old, but a, someone exciting to follow you know it was Damian Lillard you know just draining long threes it was Luka Doncic it was the dynamic between Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray it was Anthony Davis it was LeBron James it was Jimmy Butler I mean there was every week it sort of seemed like there was someone everyone was talking about everyone was excited about and I'm not gonna lie I had a lot of reservations about the construction of this bubble but it did bring me a little bit of joy you know in a time in which I felt like I needed it and so I'm gonna be grateful for that
0: You know, it brought us joy, and it also brought stability. I mean, I think in retrospect, what we're going to remember about this season was, yes, LeBron James defining again his own greatness, doing it with a third team, doing it under these insane circumstances. But at the same time, we're going to remember the fact that somebody was able to do something successfully during the pandemic. They had no positive tests. The bubble was you know, psychologically debilitating on everybody that was in there, but everybody also persevered and got it done. It was sort of America as America, as we sort of would hope it would be during a crisis like this. You know, it took the, the riches of the NBA to make this happen. And that's obviously exclusionary for much of the rest of the country, but at the same time, they did it and they did it right. And it worked.
1: Right. I mean, that's the kind of American exceptionalism you'd hope that, you know, we could take our examples from, right? The NBA coming together, you know, people with all these differing interests coming together and for a better, a common cause, you know, prevailing in some sort of ways, you know? Um, it's I mean, it's a real testament. I can't think of another league other than, you know, the WNBA, the NBA, I guess the NHL sort of pulled it off a little bit as well. But um, it's just... It's just shocking because the NFL is the league with all the resources, the attention of America, and they're going through their thing right now. We'll talk about that in another segment. But, um, yeah, the NBA really provided a model. But for, for me, um, you know, at the end of the game, I really just got to thinking about how incredibly lucky the NBA is to have LeBron as the face of the league. Um, you know, he's this unprecedented athlete who came in with unprecedented hype, justified all of that. Um, he became a voice. Um, he Developed a little bit of charisma, because, I mean, if you remember those early, like, LeBron's ads, he was a little stiff, you know what I'm saying? But he's he's come around on that, and he's just divisive enough to be interesting. And no hint of scandal. There's no gambling thing with him. There's no, you know, any of the other stuff that you might, that has come around with other, other stars. So the NBA won't have this again, and they really need to appreciate it.
2: I do think that giving credit to the NBA is a kind of model for the rest of us, while well, I totally— share that view. It's a little bit like saying we should be more like Denmark. You know, there is, there are certain advantages. The NBA is smaller than let's say the NFL. It didn't have to r- do an entire season. You know, there are, and also it has very smart kind of coherent leadership and buy-in from the players. I mean, there's sort of like, it's really it is an argument for culture. I mean, to be honest, I mean, it's the fact that all the players bought in, you know, from the start, there was never any kind of question of, There was maybe a little bit of, you know, maybe somebody crossed the line picking up some takeout or whatever. But other than that, maybe someone went to a a gentleman's club when he shouldn't have. (laughs) But, you know, aside from these two kind of prominent, or a couple prominent examples, really everyone bought in. No one was saying, do we really need to be do this? Or if they were saying it, they were saying it quietly enough that it never made it out into the press. I thought that that was really impressive. I mean, there was this real sense that everybody knew what the stakes were that it was going to be extremely hard, that it maybe wasn't even worth it, you know? But at the same time, everybody did it. And there was that kind of buy-in and commitment that I really do feel is maybe lacking in some other areas. But yeah, I I do also think it's worth noting that the NBA has had certain kind of structural advantages um, and certain cultural advantages that other leagues and other parts of our society don't have.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, some of that is that, I mean, they trust their leadership. The workforce trusts the leadership And the leadership trusts the workforce, and they work together in concert together, right? And that's not not necessarily anything that's going on in a lot of other institutions across our country.
0: Absolutely. Right. And I think, you know, it's not fashionable to, to praise sports commissioners, but in the case of the NBA, it's genuine. And Adam Silver has demonstrated over the last few years since he took over from David Stern that he is eminently thoughtful, that he is eminently likable, and that he is agreeable to... Conversation to negotiation to listening to his constituents to listening to the employees in this league who are the players and I think it's healthy to to recognize that and you know Ben Golliver in the Washington Post did what of, of all the ones that I've read sort of the best summation of the bubble life and the end of the bubble. And, you know, he points out that, you know, he points out that there was a personal kindness in his words to the way that NBA leadership responded to players and journalists and staff who made the bubble work. And, you know, he said that it's difficult to articulate that without sounding like you're a victim of Stockholm syndrome, but it's true. The NBA had the billions of dollars at its disposal to enact an operation like the bubble but they it seems like they used them judiciously in you know in the service of the players and in the service of the fans too
1: i mean this sounds ridiculous and i know that's a very political point but i wouldn't be mad if adam silver was in charge of our national response to the coronavirus as opposed to the person that's currently in charge of it, right? Like, I mean, that's not, it's, it would sound ridiculous in a vacuum if you just said that, you know, five, six years ago that the NBA commissioner is somebody that you trust more than the person that's theoretically ahead uh, in charge of the federal government's response. But it actually, like, if they, if they made that decision today, they're like, all right, Adam Silver's gonna come in and take it over here through the rest of 2020, I'd be like, oh man, we have, a, we have a chance now. We have some hope uh, of possibly, you know, uh, getting all the resources that we need and getting through this. Uh, and you know in in time so um there's definitely that but you know i I, you know getting back to the game at least for me um did you all see game five did you all watch game five that night Mm -hmm. like i i've never seen a better Mm. i mean i I mean maybe i've seen better games but in in terms of like individual spectacle i can't ever remember a time
2: when i've seen anything like that right the coming down to the wire the sort of face-off aspect of it yeah it was. I mean, I actually thought I thought that the basketball throughout was a, generally speaking with a few, you know, exceptions, really high quality, really exciting, um, you know, and, and it only seemed to get better, which is something that, you know, you can't always say. It looked like even the finals were going to be a dud two games in and it, we ended up with something that was not, if not a classic, then something at least that, you know, the the league can be proud to have showcased.
0: Well, there aren't sports, you know, often about sort of our expectations versus reality. And, you know, we were not expecting Jimmy Butler to be the equal of LeBron James in terms of taking a team, putting it on his back, and bringing it within a couple of games of winning a championship. And that game five was, you know, it was a great game overall, but it was that, you know, how often do we get to see what truly a a dynamic one against one matchup? Um, Not necessarily every time up and down the court, but in terms of leading their teams and wanting to be the player that that does it. That was a remarkable game.
2: I felt like it also did help explain why they were doing this in some sense. Mm -hmm, I mean, it was such a great example of what, you know, the best of sports can be. I mean, I wasn't watching that thinking like, well, you know, there are 200,000 people. I mean, all of the, the context really matters throughout this, but it was such a vivid individual example of how much fun and how important feeling, actually, even though there's in some sense, nothing at stake. It felt like there was something really important and human, you know, going on
0: in that game. Right, but and Joel, I think that that was an important aspect of the whole experience. It kind of humanized the players. We got to see them performing not in the the usual way where they, you know, put on suits after the game and depart mm-hmm. in a limo, and we think that they're living in this rarefied world. But we got to see them as sort of, you know, stuck in this place that any of us would struggle to endure for two or three months the way that they did. And we also got to see them devoting, because they were in this concentrated environment, a lot of their efforts to what they all said and demonstrated really mattered to them, which was having a voice on social justice issues,
1: yeah. I mean, you know, we got to see Paul George talk about the, you know, the mental toll of being in the in the bubble. We got to see Jamal Murray after that game he had in the Western Conference Finals, you know, sort of collapse to his to his knees uh, and and emotionally, and all these other moments that you typically don't get when you're just watching basketball. When you're just watching TNT and you're watching ESPN mm-hmm. during the playoffs, that kind of stuff doesn't come up. But this was definitely unique. Experience and, and watch I mean, like even like the footage of them walking off the floor for the strike right uh, they're watching the bucks leave the floor like that's a, that's something that we'll never forget and yeah I mean you can only do that through a bubble like actually it will be really interesting to see what the NBA does for an encore here because I imagine trying to convince everybody to get back <laughs> into a bubble for months at a time is going to be impossible and it was so emotionally draining so I like. <sighs> You almost think that maybe they should just wait it out and see like where we're going from here on out because trying to top that, trying to recapture what they were able to pull off here in the last few months, it just doesn't seem like it'll be possible.
2: It is true, and I also think that that's a really important point. That one of the things that they succeeded in was not just showcasing the the basketball in the court, but you know, really kind of demonstrating that these were complex, thoughtful people who and also that they weren't. There wasn't that reality. TV aspect where you felt everything was sort of done for the cameras they were living literally in a TV set you know but on the other hand I think the strike was really and the kind of the drama that surrounded it and the players meeting and things like that was evidence that these were people who were actually seriously grappling with very real issues and really feeling things and really trying to think through things and learning you know And, and I felt like we got a a kind of really rare window into people doing what I hope people are doing a- across the United States. Um, but I, th- I think it's rare to get that, and it's even rarer from the sort of like protected bubble that athletes normally live in. You know, in some ways, there was some an inverse like the bubble let us gave us a glimpse into the bubble you know that most people normally live in.
0: The head of the players' union, Michelle Roberts, who's black, said after the season ended about the players, they've learned to respect each other as men and therefore can empathize with each other as men. And I think we struggle to attribute or assign these sort of genuine kinds of emotions to athletes. And I think that hearing people like Michelle Roberts, Eric Spolstra, the Heat coach, said it after the final game too – But hearing that this really was important and that there was this evolution in the way that the players thought and talked to each other and got along and considered their roles as elite athletes in society, those were all real. And it feels genuine. And and more than anything, I think that the credibility that the NBA deserves and the credit they deserve is making a collective statement that didn't feel manufactured. It didn't feel fake. It felt like from the heart. And, you know, we saw that with the strike, but we also saw that with the continued articulation of genuine goals and policy ideals from so many players led by LeBron James. And Joel, I think, let's take it there for a little bit before we finish up. But LeBron not only, you know, did something on the court to cement his legacy as the Greatest or second greatest player who cares, and we'll talk about that in the bonus segment of all time, but he was able to sort of carry the burden of being the spokesman for the players on this monumental social justice effort.
1: Yeah, I mean – He's clearly been positioning himself to take on that role for years, and you can see that there probably is a little bit of a generational divide, though, because some of the younger players did not want to play, you know, like the Kyries or uh, the Jalen Browns who were a little bit more skeptical, right, of the the NBA owners and, and their intentions and following up on the things that they said they would do. But yeah, I mean, LeBron... In terms of growing into his voice, it's just been sort of amazing. I mean, there's no reason for him to be as good at any of this stuff as he is. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like he had uh, Grant Hill's background, you know, where he grew up under, Mm -hmm. you know, Wellesley and Yale graduates and, you know, had all this other stuff. Like, he kind of came into this on his own. And I just don't think we can ever underestimate the extent to which, like, that guy is sort of one of one, that he's a really special dude. And it would be enough— if he was just playing basketball and was just sort of like, you know, well, you know, I try to stay out of politics or whatever, but he's actually just decided to stick his face into the buzzsaw, which says something about him and says something about the people around him who he's had to surround himself with. And, I, and one other quick thing, I would say that kind of to circle back to what we said about getting a chance to view the players. I think the players have always been like this. I think that mm-hmm. they've always been active within their communities. I mean, studies always show that, you know, black athletes, black men are always, you know, active in their community in terms of giving back money, time, all this other sort of things. But we got a window into it for the first time this time. Like this is the sort of stuff that we're not actually privy to a lot of the times. And so we got to see it. And uh, I think it's valuable, but I also think it's not surprising that a lot of people decided to fixate on ratings and wokeness and all this other stuff because, you know, they don't like to think of these guys as athletes. They just want them to get out there and hoop.
2: The one thing that, though, you know, that does kind of suggest the value of some of the conversations they were having, though, and and also the impact of LeBron. LeBron, before the season, you know, before the resumption of the season started, announced that he was starting this organization more than a vote that was, you know, focused on combating voter suppression, particularly among African-American communities. And, you know, it was the kind of thing that LeBron does. You know, he steps in, he creates this community of celebrities and, you know, throws some money at a problem. And it was splashy. And I didn't really think too much of it, you know, other than this was the evolution and what where he was going with this. Um, and then I also had a a little bit of, you know, skepticism during the walkout or the wildcat strike, you know, in which he he sort of tried to turn that into, you know, the compromise that they came to basically was that the stadiums were going to be polling places and there was going to be a little bit more concentration on what was sort of his issue. It was obviously crucially important, but there was a little bit of dissonance between the action that the Milwaukee Bucks had taken and where it ended up. That said, the NBA PA had some understanding there were about like very low voter registration numbers among NBA players, you know, coming into coming yeah. into this summer. I think it's now at above eighty percent, and on some yeah. teams, it's a hundred percent. And you know, I really think that a lot of people are speaking really eloquently, and there's this kind of a new understanding, also not just about what's happening at the presidential level, but you know, in, on local levels as well. And I think that those conversations are only happening because LeBron started them in a lot of ways. And this this stuff is really really important right now. And and I think that that hit that impact is is pretty clear those statistics are probably as important as any triple-double he pulled off.
0: Another good statistic, LeBron's more-than-a-vote collective announced the other day that they'd signed up 10,000 volunteers to work in Black electoral workers as poll workers. Not bad. Apple Card is the perfect cash-back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. On Sunday afternoon in Dallas, Cowboys quarterback Dak Prescott ran for nine yards, was tackled, and it was immediately clear that something was wrong. The camera zoomed in and we saw Prescott's right foot rotated clockwise 90 degrees. It was a compound ankle fracture, a bone pierced his skin, Prescott underwent surgery and is, of course, done for the season. Meanwhile, in Landover, Maryland, on the same field where 693 days earlier his own lower leg bone pierced his skin, Washington quarterback Alex Smith returned to play. Smith's brutal recovery included 17 surgeries and an infection of flesh-eating bacteria that nearly required his leg to be amputated. Let's listen to a clip after Smith took the field against the Los Angeles Rams on Sunday.
3: You saw his wife Elizabeth and the kids in the crowd. I mean, what a nervous moment this must be for them. (laughs) And they love
2: it.
0: That was Fox Sports' Brandon Godin with the call and Daryl Johnston with the nervous laughter. Joel, the cruel juxtaposition of these two events on Sunday had the effect on me anyway of reinforcing the awfulness of both. Smith's return didn't feel especially heroic, and Prescott's injury felt
1: a little more foreboding than it might. What did you see in these events? Well, you know, for me, I don't necessarily see them as connected. And I know I'm really threading the needle there when I say it, because Dak's injury was like horrifying and deflating. But to me, it was ultimately part of football, right? So I've been watching injuries like that the entire time I've watched football in my life. So I saw what happened to Joe Theismann. I saw what happened to Napoleon McCallum. I don't know if people remember Napoleon McCallum. Mm-hmm. He was a Raiders running back whose leg basically got bent all the way around. Marcus Lattimore, University of South Carolina, and so on and so forth. You know, it, my very first spring football game at TCU, one of my teammates broke his ankle in the exact same way. So in recent years though I've become a little bit more squeamish about all this I know that this is ultimately how the game unfolds and so it's just a part of the bargain and maybe it should be that way because as a football fan it shouldn't all be ecstasy and like violence right like we it sh- we should be grounded in the the fact that it is very dangerous it should affect us but I think that Alex Smith is different because though his injury falls into that grotesque injury category Everything that happens after that is different to me. Like, he had 17 surgeries that, as you mentioned, cost him tissue and muscle, almost had an amputation, and then he's walking around with a limp. There was this Project 11 documentary about Alex Smith and his comeback, and what I took from it most was that limp. And so if injuries are part of the game, so is rehab, so is training, so is the medical expertise that teams and players call in during times of traumatic injury— and if all those elements fall into place and they say a player can return, I usually don't spend too much time fretting about it. But this is different, man. Like, he clearly looks compromised and like he can't protect himself out there. And usually once players are like visibly diminished, you never see them as players again, right? Like normally when you see a football player and he's like limping in such a way, that guy is no longer a football player. So that's sort of what I took from it. But Luisa, I mean, maybe you saw something else. Maybe I'm being a little too dismissive of Dak's injury. I don't know.
2: No, I mean, I I have to say that I saw Doc's injury, not during the flow of the game, but on a highlight. And I wasn't really prepared for what I saw. You know, I had seen reference to gruesome injury and things like that, but still seeing the clip, I mean, I I caught my breath and my stomach just, you know, turned over. Not unlike, I have to say, um, (laughs) Alex Smith's wife, who, um, you know, the broadcast said loved it, but she said afterwards that she felt like she was going to vomit when he ran on the field. I just thought with the Dak Prescott, you know, yeah, the thing is that violence isn't a consequence of football. It's part of football. You know, every play is danger. It's sort of the point. Every play is a crisis that needs to be resolved. And the physical danger is part of why we watch if we're being honest with ourselves. And th- things like that happen and they happen again and again. Yeah, Alex Smith's story is different um, because it involves something that happened probably at the you know the infection part of it is is what was so worrisome and ultimately life threatening. It wasn't the fact that he got tackled by huge, enormous people. <laughs> so I would say that Dax's injury, yes, I, I would say I'd agree with Joel. Dax's injury was sort of seemed part of the game, whereas Alex Smith's comeback seems something that was not really supposed to happen because nothing that w- had happened to him was really supposed to happen, and there was something really kind of alarming about it because we had to watch him be hit again and again and again. I mean, he was sacked six times in just a little more than a half of, of, you know, a half of a football game. And it was scary, you know? It was really something to see him stand in there and watch these enormous watch Aaron Donald jump on top of him and just on the first there. sack Aaron you know?
0: Donald just jumped on his
2: back like he was giving him a piggyback ride and there was something actually a little bit perverse about it I felt like I mean he ended up getting like 37 yards which is only 20 more yards than surgeries he had <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's not like he was in there holding his own you know I right. mean he was surviving he was surviving and there yeah. was something that might have seemed like heroic if he'd Stood in there and, and, you know, maybe taken one sack and, you know, made one throw or whatever. We could have celebrated it. But he f- it looked like he was a a kind of piñata out there. But at the same time, you know, I also think that if anyone knows how scary and violent and gruesome football can be, it's Alex Smith. You know, it's not like he didn't know what he was getting into. Right. So to me, it's about framing. You know, I yeah. mean,
0: look, all three of us have in our own ways close Encounters with football, and we are all have seen up close the damage that the game can do and are. you know, fully aware of it on a personal level, like how violent it is and what it means to play football. What troubles me, I think, the most is the way that Alex Smith-type stories get framed. I mean, it is framed as this heroic recovery that we want to feel good about it. You know, we want to have goosebumps. Seeing Alex Smith trot on the field is a testament to perseverance and hard work And the will to get back what you lost. Les Carpenter did a long piece in the Washington Post about Smith getting back on the field. And he talked to Smith's wife, Elizabeth, extensively. And for all of the quotations, the one thing that she doesn't talk about, you know, she talks about the struggle of going through physical therapy and worrying about whether he'd ever walk again and about his dedication and determination to get better. But the one thing that isn't in there is whether she actually agreed that putting a helmet on and getting back on a field was the right thing to do. It all felt like Alex Smith was determined to do this, so he was going to do this. Whether it made sense for him, for his family, or for the Washington football team isn't really something that gets talked about.
2: I actually found the focus on her to be really interesting, you know, on the broadcasts, on social media, in that story. Yeah, that's actually where I got the that she was going to vomit you know I mean it was sort of a, it was sort of like this is so great and yet there are these sort of little hidden you know question marks and little like sprinkle like easter eggs throughout the piece but I also think that to me she came across as really conflicted it wasn't clear to me that she thought that it wasn't worth right. it um, at all you know and she was clearly proud of him and thought he was amazing that he has set his mind to do this and had done it and there was a real dignity um into what he was doing in her mm-hmm. the way she was describing it at the same time, yeah, it's terrifying. And that's the role that I've, you know, been in in football. You know, I've been in the stands of, of watching someone come off a, in my case, it was a very serious concussion. And, you know, the first time he's out on the field, I think it was a kickoff return, which is like the most dangerous play in football, you know? And it's just like, are you in that moment, are you like, is it cool? You know, yeah. is it happy? You know, is it exciting? No, it's like just kind of terrifying but you know at the same time she was being used as a sort of proxy i think um and people were projecting onto her what they wanted to feel and i think that to the extent that you're uncomfortable with it you're focused on the part of her that is really uncomfortable with it and to the extent that you want to celebrate it you're focused on the part of her that is really proud and happy and this is her life and so for a lot of us this is part of life for a lot of fans even Mm -hmm. football is part of life and they want to they feel a lot of things probably but certain things kind of come to the fore and, and this is one of those examples in which there are just there yeah, there are a lot of a lot of emotions.
0: <laughs> yeah because Joel, I mean it's easy to say, look, Alex Smith has made about 190 million dollars in his NFL career. Why on earth would he want to do this? And it's also important to put yourself in the mind of an athlete like Alex Smith that determination isn't you know it isn't made up. Sure. He didn't have to go through this. He didn't have to prove anything to anybody. So there is something driving him and other athletes like him to want to get back out there.
1: Well, I mean, I thought that he was doing this because you do want to have the use of that leg again, right? So I thought that like rehab, the 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 carrot of NFL football was what was going to help him get mm-hmm. through rehab, and then he'd get there and he'd be like, yeah, "All right, I did it. I got back close enough to where I could play in the NFL, right. and that was great." And it is worth thinking about he was the third string quarterback up until a week ago, right? Which is where you get into how poorly managed the Washington football team is once again, right? Like, I mean, they spent all this offseason trying to rebrand and, you know, pretend things are different over there. But ultimately, I mean, they're still mismanaging things. And I mean, you know, I guess if Alex Smith is ready to go, he's ready to go. But I just don't think that a responsible franchise, a responsible leadership would have allowed him to be in that situation.
0: Right, on a rainy field with a shitty offensive line in a useless game. They dressed two quarterbacks, they benched their first-round draft pick that they've maybe rushed too soon into a role of of responsibility, and now who are basically throwing under the bus and talking about trading. This is not a good situation. If I were Alex Smith, I'd be worried that Kyle Allen is going to get hurt, and I'm going to have to play
1: every down. Well, I mean, there was no need to run off Dwayne Haskins this early. There was no need to run Kyle Allen out there. They already know he's not a good quarterback. I mean, Kyle Allen, since high school, has lost every quarterback job he's had. He lost his job at Texas A and M. He lost his job at the University of Houston. He lost his job. He didn't have a job at the Carolina Panthers, but then he lost the job that he had. So I don't understand what made Ron Rivera or anyone else think that he was the answer. So this is all just a piece of them not having a contingency plan, like them just like believing they want to see something in Kyle Allen that actually is not there. And in that way, they're putting Alex Smith in danger because the third string quarterback, a lot of teams don't dress the third quarterback, right? Like, especially when, you know, roster spots are so valuable in the league. So I could theoretically see why they may have not thought there wasn't a chance that he was going to play out there. But I just, I mean... Come on, man. The dude gets hit six times. You might as well just go to the Wildcat. You know what I mean? I mean, (laughs)
0: mean, anybody could have signed Andy Dalton and felt like, hey, we can have a a serviceable veteran quarterback to back up someone we don't trust. Washington obviously did not do that. Also, Kaepernick.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, Alex Smith is still playing. Colin Kaepernick is not. I mean, Colin Kaepernick beat Alex Smith for a starting role like a decade ago, almost at this point. And Alex Smith is out there limping around playing, you know, compromise. I'm sure Colin Kaepernick, if they stood him out there, maybe he would have got to sack six times, too, but it probably would not have looked like that.
0: All right. Before we move on, let's talk a little bit about the status of the NFL's schedule. Um, I just checked. And the Tennessee Titans, who have had 24 positive coronavirus tests dating back to September 24th, announced that they had no new positives on Tuesday morning for a second straight day. And the NFL is saying that they will host the Buffalo Bills on Tuesday night in a game that had already obviously been rescheduled. The New England Patriots game was postponed last weekend. They're supposed to play next Sunday now. The game was supposed to be Monday night. A Bears practice squad player tested positive on Monday. And the league has had to like reschedule a lot of games already. This is not the NBA, Louisa.
2: This is not the NBA. And I I maintain that it would have been impossible for the NFL to do what the NBA did. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, this goes back to kind of what I was saying about the NBA. The NBA not only created a bubble, they created a culture where everybody knew what the rules were, they knew the expectations, and they followed them, whether or not they wanted to. And when they didn't, they were punished. And we obviously don't know of examples where you know there was rules that were broken and we didn't hear about it. But For the most part, I think we can confidently say that there was a pretty clear buy-in from the players and from the coaches and from everyone involved. The NFL could have done, that's the part the NFL is really failing. You know, it seems like players felt empowered to go hold private practices. You know, it felt like there were a number of Raiders who showed up at a charity event not wearing masks. Some of these things have been subsequently addressed by new protocols. But the point is that there is the sense that not everybody involved really either understood or was willing to follow what you needed to do to make sure that everything that's happening now didn't happen. And that's what's so disappointing to me. It's less that they didn't create like this, you know, kind of biosphere, biodome or whatever, and more that they really didn't establish a culture in which people understood the rules and followed them.
1: Right. Even before we went into this, there was already some dissension, right? That we knew that they were arguing over the terms and how people were going to uh, set up these protocols and abide by them. And so, you know, I saw pa- uh, Patriots cornerback Jason McCordy say something like, you know, the league office and players unions don't care and that for them, it is not about our best interests or our health and safety. It is about what can we make protocol wise that sounds good, looks good. And how can we go out there and play the games? And I would argue that that's always been the league's ethos, but it is even more pronounced during a deadly pandemic. I mean, we can we see how little investment these entities have in the health and well-being of their players all the time. I mean, just a few months ago, they were arguing over whether or not to add a 17th game to the schedule. Like, we know that it's not good and healthy for them to play more regular season games, but they've done that in spite of the potential health costs, right? And so it's just it's just exacerbated during all this. And to your point, Lisa, I, I totally agree. Like, normally, I'm not a dude who blames individual actors at the expense of institutions. But here's the thing. You agreed to go back there. You agreed to play football. And you agreed to abide by these protocols. So if you're not going to do that, then yeah, you should be punished. Now, I don't know, you know, Doug Farrar, USA Today, said that, you know, he thinks that they should probably suspend them for the rest of the year. I don't know if that seems very excessive because that that punishes other teams, too. But I do think that they should suffer some sort of serious consequence because they're not—they're not just putting themselves at risk; they're putting everybody around them at risk. And that's always been the problem with this pandemic: is that it's not about the risk that you take for yourself; it's that the—the the risk you put other people in that don't know that the, you're you're taking these risks right
0: two things before we wrap this up one is that in terms of the protocols themselves and like the Titans actually playing a game on Tuesday it doesn't seem clear in reading what epidemiologists say that this makes any sense at all that the NFL is still sort of basing the a team's ability to play and a player's ability to return on how many consecutive negative tests they get that's not accepted wisdom and the second part is, players are starting to push back against the NFL. You know, the players that are feeling like they are being placed potentially in dangerous positions are starting to fight. Like you mentioned, Joel Jason McCordy at the Patriots. Melvin Gordon also was upset that that their game was canceled. Um, the Broncos game was canceled after having to practice all week. Like There isn't planning and forethought going on here. I'm not so sure that shutting the Titans season down entirely wouldn't make some sense. It might be, you know, uh, the healthiest step that the the league could take, and it would give all the Titans opponents a bye week, an extra week off, which no NFL player ever will complain about.
1: Screw them. I mean, they're no longer the Oilers, so I have no more emotional investment in them
3: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Joel, Louisa, and I will engage in some goat talk. LeBron or Michael, who's better? Do we care? If you want to hear that and you're not a member, here's our reminder that you can sign up for Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. And you can do that at Slate.com slash hangup plus. Like all pandemic era sports, this year's French Open was weird. It was delayed, of course, so it was cold in Paris with players dressed in leggings and mock turtlenecks. Some fans were allowed in the stands, which seemed wrong, given a surge in coronavirus cases in France. Serena Williams withdrew early with an Achilles injury, and Roger Federer was missing entirely after knee surgery. And the winners couldn't have been more different, 32-year-old Rafael Nadal, once again, demonstrating greatness and 19-year-old Iga Žviantek introducing herself to the tennis world. But Louisa, the winners did share one thing in common. Neither dropped a set and route to their titles. Let's start with Rafa. He crushed Novak Djokovic in the final. Six love, six, two, seven, five. 20th major title, tying Federer for the most all-time, 13 French wins is absurd. It's five more than anyone has won at any other major. Why can't anyone touch Nadal on Roland Garros Is clay?
2: Oh, I think we should start by acknowledging that no one can really touch him on any other surface, with the exception of Novak Djokovic, had Nadal decided to come to New York earlier this year, actually just last month. He would have come in as the defending champion. So that said, there are certain aspects of his game that are very well suited to the clay at Roland Garros. His spin, the way he hits his forehand with his kind of extreme Western grip, causes his balls to dive down and leap up really high, especially when the conditions are hot and dry, as they usually are in June. This is October. The conditions were damp and cold. What was so incredible about his performance here was that the it wasn't actually very well suited to him, at least as we've gone come to understand his game. Um, And he was pretty unhappy throughout. He thought it was cold. He thought they shouldn't, you know, it's not good tennis weather. It was dangerous, you know, and then the balls didn't suit him and all this stuff. And he still comes out and in one of the most incredible performances I've ever seen, um, absolutely crushes Novak Djokovic. And the thing is, in the first set of that match, Djokovic played pretty well. I mean, with an exception of an over-reliance on the drop shot, he was playing as really the best player in the world should play. And he lost that set 6-0. And Nadal, to his incredibly immense credit, wasn't even really working his, what we know as his best shot, his inside-out forehand. He was really kind of playing backhand to backhand. He was playing a strategically good match. And he, yeah, I actually think of the very many incredible performances I've seen from not Rafael Nadal. This is up there. And even Djokovic, who knows this game better than anyone, said that he was surprised.
1: Well, let me ask this question then as a uh, non tennis knower. How often is tennis played in weather like this because I think that like that's something you know the the idea that they're wearing like sweats and wearing all these weird you know weird like warm weather clothes I don't this seems like also you wouldn't be able to move quite as well but maybe I'm sure there's been you know advancements in tennis clothing technology but I assume that this is not common for them to play in cool rainy weather and so, so on and so forth right
2: It's not tennis players are a little soft that way let's be honest <laughs> um, <laughs> close
3: the roof uh, close the yeah roof. exactly
2: so tennis actually has an indoor season you wouldn't know it because if you're following tennis as a casual fan none of the slams are indoors i think actually um actually all the slams are indoors sometimes now because yeah. everybody's got a roof but mm-hmm. there is an indoor you know tennis is played in paris in the fall indoors you know it's played in london in november indoors but we don't see a lot of that and players also So players aren't really used to being exposed to the elements, as it were. It happens. There was a particularly notable French Open a few years ago when the conditions were monsoon-like and cold. But that was big news because it's not usually like that. Most of the players are used to—Victoria Azarenka, you know, who was uh, one of the top players in the world, form number one, she actually walked off court, you know, when she was being told to stay on when it's rained. She says, as she's walking off, you don't understand. I'm from Florida, <laughs> or I live. No, she's not from Florida. She's, but
0: she's
2: like, I live in Florida. I'm not used to this.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like they were complaining more about like the chilly temperatures <laughs> yeah. in Paris, which like I would kill for, than when it's 110 degrees <laughs> in Australia during the australian open
1: yeah yeah that's just shocking to me the the the, 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 the it seems like cool weather cool cool weather is good for running for instance right like but Mm -hmm. i don't know it's
0: not good for hitting tennis balls as hard as you can because of physics Um, Mm -hmm. And that was one of the complaints at the tournament overall. And you mentioned that Nadal was whining about the tennis balls. There were new tennis balls introduced. They didn't bounce quite as high. The the courts are damp if there had been drizzle or rain. So it changes everybody's game. And like you said, Louisa, the fact that Nadal still destroyed the field in those conditions, feeling that way is is crazy but you said like he's obviously dominant on other surfaces as well and has won all of the majors at one point or another but at the french open it's insane he is he has a lifetime record on um in sets at the french open of 298 and 27 that's nuts I mean, ninety-eight percent winning record at this tournament.
2: Yeah, it's unprecedented. There's not really anything. I'd be hard pressed to think of another streak like this in sport across the world because yeah, I don't think I mean it's always easy to say, we'll never gonna see this again. I feel like we said that when Roger Federer won 20 slams and here we are, <laughs> you right. know, but um but it's hard to imagine someone winning thirteen slams and doing it with the kind of relentlessness that Nadal has done it. It's just incredible. And, you know, why stop now? Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna, Hopefully we'll be back there in a few months. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And Nadal's 34, Federer, um, Djokovic is, what, 32, um, Federer's 39. So the GOAT conversation among especially Nadal and Federer was sort of revived after this tournament again, because that's what people do in tennis. But both of these players kind of don't want to have that conversation. And Nadal said, that he cares about tying Federer for the most majors, but he also said, I'm a big fan of the history of sport in general. For me, it means a lot to share this number with Roger. And then Federer tweeted out this incredibly generous, long statement of congratulations. I mean, these players, you know, this feels like genuine respect um, and back and forth. And whether or not Federer wins another major is not looking great right now. I guess it's possible but he's going to get passed by Nadal and they both might get passed by Djokovic in the end.
2: I'm not sure the other two would speak as genuinely fondly about the the man nipping at their heels. Right. But um but I do think between them there is a lot of real not only respect but admiration.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess that's that's pretty interesting to me um because you'd think that like normally those goat conversations the way that they happen like they create this this tension around the guys, like because you can't run away from it, it's always there. I don't like. I don't know a lot about Rafael Nadal, but you know Roger Federer. The only thing I know about him, for the most part, besides his like excellence, is that he seems fairly milk toast. Does that does that make sense? You know what I mean? Like not milk, maybe not milk toast. Just like a very uh, gentle. Person. Does that make sense? A Swiss? Swiss. Swiss. Is, is that Swiss? Okay. Yeah. Just like not very, you know, nothing that would be inflammatory, nothing divisive about him. And so, like, that's why I'm like, well, you know, maybe having one of those guys involved in it naturally is going to take the steam out of a conversation about who's better at not. If one guy's just like, I don't care. You know, like, like if Kawhi was in the conversation for GOAT, it'd be like, well, what are you feeding off of with Kawhi? Because there's just nothing there, right? He's just that dude.
2: And it all is very humble. I mean, and, yeah. and in a way that seems genuine as well. I mean, it was really striking throughout this tournament, actually, how he kept calling attention to, you know, what was happening around the world um, and talking about his sadness. Sad was a word that he used. Um, he wasn't, you know, other players were saying, let's, we're here to play tennis, let's stick to tennis. And he was saying, no, this is a, a serious moment and we need to treat it with gravity. And And yet, you know still do what we're we're here to do. I mean, yeah, he
0: said many people in the world are suffering. And he that was earlier in the tournament. And then after the final, in his the you know, the normal on court interviews where the players always thank their teams for 10 minutes and thank their opponent for and and, and try to be as gracious as possible. He drew attention to the fact that This was difficult, you know, and that we are all in this together. We have to stay positive. We will together go through this and win. And Nadal, while his English is excellent, he is always even more genuine and open when he is speaking his native Spanish. And so to see him sort of over the years sort of become more comfortable having these more heartfelt kinds of conversations is really touching. He's a good guy, right? Yeah. He seems that way. I mean, yeah, yeah. And it's hard to know with right super superstar athletes, but he definitely radiates that, especially as he gets later in his career. All right, let's talk about Iga Swiatek a little bit. Now I said that they don't have much in common. She and Nadal, but she idolizes Nadal, right, Luisa? And she plays. She's modeled certain aspects of her of her game after Nadal, and more than that, has modeled certain aspects of her behavior after Nadal
2: absolutely in fact there is a kind of there is a little bit of an irony there because she's not ranked she well she's now ranked inside the top 50 but um coming into the french open you know she'd never won a title she she's 19 years old she's you know was sort of known for her interest in punk rock more than her results on the tennis court but she yeah she really has Talked about. She she said that she um, learned tennis by playing like PlayStation tennis or we whatever the video. i probably got it wrong. Ap- apologies, to all the gamers out there. But um, <laughs> yeah, she with the exception of Nadal, Nadal was the one that she did accept was a role model for her. And you can actually see it watching her game. She has this high forehand follow through like a buggy whip in certain si- situations and kind of torques you know, twerks her body in a way that is reminiscent of Nadal. One big difference is that she actually really crowds the court. You know, she is not afraid to really charge and take take balls early. And Nadal sometimes camps way back. And I feel like uh, Iga Świątek was, you know, hitting balls from almost the service line at some point. I mean, she was really enjoying attacking. And she's also a great mover and great defender. And yeah, I mean, I, I was totally blown away. Um, can't say I saw it coming, to be honest. But then again, not many did, including possibly herself.
1: I don't want to be the person that makes it all about Serena Williams, right? But Serena checked out of the tournament with an injury earlier, right? And so I see that, like, you know, of the past 14 Grand Slam champs, nine have been first-time winners, and they're all, like, really young, like her, right? And Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, like, do (laughs) you—I remember watching Serena play uh, in the semis of the U.S. Open and thinking, man— she doesn't look like she moves, you know, great anymore. Right. And I just wonder, like, it just seems to me that like maybe she won't ever win another Grand Slam because it just seems like with the youth and like the power and all the athleticism of these younger players, that maybe, you know, it's just sort of a sign that she might not be able to get back up there again. But I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into this. I don't know.
2: I think that she has, since coming back from giving birth, put herself in a position to win again and again and again. And that is the first thing you have to do in order to win a Grand Slam. So I don't want to say that she's not going to do it because again, you know, the fact that she was just in the semis last month, you know, that's, that's a match. She was upset. That's a match she could have won. And then who knows what happens when you get into a final. That said, I don't think that it's in in any way an inevitability. And that is because there are a lot of really young, talented, fearless players who are coming after her and players who have learned from her and players who have adopted both aspects of the game and a kind of fearlessness from her and are playing power tennis and are incredible defenders and incredible movers. And yeah, I mean, she's still the best server in the game, I would say for the most, well, I mean, there's a, us of the world and stuff, but but generally, I would say that she can do things that still can do things that no one else can do. That said, you know, I wish there weren't so much attention and at being put on this quest for number twenty four. And granted, that the attention's there only there because she has, you know, done it. You know, she and her coach have talked so much about this goal. I don't think people would be as obsessed with it if she weren't hadn't suggested that this was her goal. Um, because what she's done, you know, making all these finals, making semis, you know, at this point in her career, that by itself is an incredible achievement. And and one thing that, you know, this kind of run of new champions shows is how hard it is to win a major and how hard it is to come back and do it again. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that there is a lot of actually positives to take from her run at the US Open. But that said, I think it's also reinforced how difficult it is to do this.
0: Joel, you mentioned nine different winners in majors in the last 14. Louisa, is this a sign of depth in women's tennis, or is it a sign that nobody, with the exception of Naomi Osaka, is breaking through consistently?
2: I think the answer is that there's a lot of depth. And that's you can see the quality of matches even in the early rounds. It's made for really exciting Grand Slam tournaments. You can tune in the second round and see a match that is, you know, knock your socks off good, um, when that's not necessarily true it was on the men's side. I do think, though, that it is hard. It is hard to follow through. It's hard to win seven matches over the course of two weeks in these circumstances. My hope is that some of these rivalries will develop. Um, We already had the Australian Open champion making the final of the French Open. We've had players, you know, hanging around in the top five. I think there's a little bit more consistency than people usually give the women credit for. But, yeah, I mean, the, the women's game, I think, is an incredibly strong position because of its depth.
4: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
0: And now it is time for After Balls. Iga Zwiątek was the first Polish player ever to win a Grand Slam. And as I was watching the uh, final, they mentioned a Polish player from the 1930s that had made the finals but lost. Uh, three times, it turns out, Jadwiga Jen Zajowska, and I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm doing my best. Jen Zajowska, Jen Zajowska. Made it to the finals of Wimbledon, the U.S., and the French, And in 37 and 39. Most important, though, she has gotten a star in Poland, sort of like the Walk of Fame in Hollywood. Oh. Tennis Stars Alley honored her with, with a star. Nice. Louisa, what is your Jadwiga...
2: Jen Zajowska. My Javiga Jen Zajowska, <laughs> as it happens, was one of her great rivals, Alice Marble. Alice Marble was a tennis star in the 1930s. She was a four-time winner at Forest Hills, which would later become the U.S. Open. She also won Wimbledon the last time in the 1939, before it was shut down for World War II, and she Later turned professional because back in those days, you couldn't make money playing tennis. And she needed money because she did not rise up through the tennis establishment, was born poor as daughter of a California logger who died when she was eight. Her brother actually supported the family as a teenager by becoming a cop in San Francisco. She didn't pick up tennis until she was 15 years old. And she was seventh in the nation before she had ever taken a lesson. The lessons came from a spingali like coach, Eleanor Tennant, named nicknamed Teach, who really reconstructed her game and also introduced her to Hollywood. Um, She was a fixture at Hearst Castle. She became friends with Carol Lombard. I mean, she really kind of had this kind of amazing Hollywood life, both literally at Hollywood and, you know, as we would imagine it. She actually collapsed on the court in France and was diagnosed with tuberculosis, told she would never play tennis again and came back to win a major. So she is um Quite the story. She was also a singer and she helped actually desegregate tennis when she really shamed the United States, I think it was the United States Tennis Lawn Association at that point, into allowing Althea Gibson to play. So, yeah, incredible story. I read her memoir a few years ago um, called Courting Danger, and it turned out that she was also a spy during World War II and had all these adventures and had married this army officer and you know had gone to reunite with a former lover in switzerland who had been with the nazis in order to extract secrets and all this you know kind of incredible story and i thought first i thought i'm gonna make a movie and then it turned the movie rights were already taken of course oh. by famous people are attached and i thought i'm gonna write a book and i started looking into it and uh it all started to unravel. <laughs> and I started talking to the military historians so they were like, well, she wouldn't probably have a gun. She would have been given a knife, you know? And that actually doesn't make sense when you look at the map, like where she's saying she was going. And then I started requesting documents, you know, pulling FOIA acts, you know, I was, you know trying to find anything I could. There was no record of a marriage. There was no record of, of really anything when it came to her wartime exploits. Um, everything else was true. You know, I went to Delaware, I went to the DuPont estate, and there was, you know, if she had said that Will DuPont, you know, was a someone who was in love with her, and sure enough, there are all these letters in which he's clearly financially supporting her <laughs> late in his life and expressing certainly uh, some kind of um, real fondness, if not, you know, romantic attachment. I sort of became more and more intrigued and more and more confused. And then I went to um, the International Hall of Fame, which has an archive, and there are several versions of this story that she tells in her memoir. One of them is a TV script that's written by Rita Mae Brown who was Martina Navratilova's girlfriend for a, for a time, and also a, a very prominent feminist activist um, who, to whom she became close later in her, in her life. Anyway, so I, I realized that she was telling a bunch of tall tales. I never figured out why. Someone actually has just written a book about her. Robert Weintraub has written The Divine Miss Marble, and he very scrupulously and rigorously debunks her many tall tales while also communicating what an incredible life she really did lead. But she remains to me a mystery because he never really figured out why she said what she said, and I still don't know. So, yeah, I'm left. My afterball is really a kind of an answerable mystery about a fascinating life, if and possibly fascinating person, but we'll never know.
1: Globalization has just been really bad for the prolific liar, you know. It's true. All right, and so Stefan, what is your Jadwiga Jendziewska?
0: Joe Morgan died on Sunday at age 77, and it feels like a lot of Hall of Fame-level athletes have been dying lately, which statistically, of course, probably isn't true. Athletes die all the time. People die all the time, especially when they hit their late 70s and early 80s. And in that regard, Joe Morgan is no different than any of us. But Morgan's death and the apparent rash of famous athlete deaths right before him, Whitey Ford last week, too, Tom Seaver, Gail Sayers, Don Larson, Lou Brock, Bob Gibson, it all got me thinking about what it means when an athlete dies and why it affects us. I mean, it's not like I knew Joe Morgan personally or any of the other guys I just mentioned, but they matter to us the same way they mattered when they played. We devote mental space to them. We invest emotion in them. We share feelings with them. But there's a taxonomy of athlete death that I think we all unconsciously abide. There are the jarring, taken too early deaths like Kobe Bryant that we all share in the same way, utter shock that a 20- or a 30- or a 40-year-old human suddenly, horribly, unexpectedly departs, whether in an accident like Kobe, or after an illness, or maybe a suicide like too many brain-injured football players. It doesn't matter. It's just wrong. At the other end are the athletes who live long, full, and competitively glorious lives. Whitey Ford was 91 when he died. Godspeed to the chairman of the board. 236 wins, six World Series titles, getting drunk with Mickey Mantle and Billy Martin at Twits Shores. What a life. Don Larson was 90. Perfect game in the 1956 World Series. Amazing. I mourn their passing, but I never watched them play. They are newsreel legends to me. White dudes in gray flam- who played against mostly other white dudes. Then there are the non-players. Don Shula was 90, but I remember him on the sidelines in Miami like it was last Sunday. John Thompson was 78 when he went in August. NBA Commissioner David Stern was 77. He was a source and an interview subject of mine. They did their jobs at their peaks long after the time athletes do theirs at their peak. Their deaths are adult deaths processed through the reality of my own adult life. For me anyway, and I suspect for you too, though, Joel and Louisa, you aren't quite there yet. The deaths of athletes that come with the heaviest dose of personal profundity are the ones who were fixtures in your childhood. It's the ones who are 20 or 25 years older than you are, whom you followed when you were between, say, 6 and 16 years old, when following sports really, really mattered. I've experienced a bunch of those this year, and it feels like it's for the first time, not because it is, but because I'm just more conscious of it. Maybe it's the pandemic. Maybe it's because athletes who played when I was a kid are actually in their late 70s now when, as I mentioned, people die but it's jarring. Joe Morgan was 77? I was flapping my left arm against my side like little Joe five minutes ago. Jim Kick is dead? What? That Sports Illustrated with him and Larry Zonka on the cover, Miami's dynamic duo, that just landed in the mailbox. Lou Brock was 81, Jay Johnstone, Bob Watson, Jimmy Wynn, Wes Unseld? How did that happen? The most saddening death of the year for me, the most haunting one, though, was a guy you might not have ever heard of, Horace Clark. Clark was the second baseman on some terrible Yankees teams, the ones that I came of age with in elementary school. Stand out in a dismal Yankee era was the New York Times headline on his obituary in August. Clark batted with his legs spread crazy far apart, the stance that my brother and I imitated in backyard wiffle ball more than any other. Clark played second base, had a good glove and a mediocre batting average, stole a few bases, had no power, reminded me of me out there. A friend texted to let me know that Hoss had died. Horace Clark, rest in peace, he wrote, No, I wrote back, yeah, 81 years old. That's not possible, I replied. It is so, my friend said. The Grim Reaper comes for us all, even Horace Clark.
1: That's sad. Oh, I hate to hear that, man, but yeah. I mean, shoot. I'm old enough, you know, Steve McNair, when Steve McNair died, although he didn't die of old age, I grew up watching Steve McNair, and I was like, damn, man, Steve McNair isn't here anymore, so... Again, that (sighs) that
0: goes into the taxonomy. That's the category of shouldn't have died yet because they're not old enough to die.
1: Fair fair point. But yeah, that's just that, you know, I don't, you know, we the the Kobe thing too, right? Like, that's another, like, Kobe is class of 96, just like me. And I, like, I will. I will probably remember that death for the rest of my life. So, anyway. Yeah. but See, yeah, it's just, it's just, you're not old enough to feel what I'm feeling yet, y'all. I know. I'm trying to, I'm trying get to there, empathize. to I just yeah, said get They didn't there. make it. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that is our show for today. Our producer is
0: Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, I'm guessing you might want even more hangup in our bonus segment this week. We'll talk about the great basketball goat debate LeBron or Michael?
2: Michael Jordan is the best at some things and LeBron James is the best at other things, you know, but that's not enough for for us. You know, we have to have sort of our take and... and die on the hill that we've chosen.
0: To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Special thanks to Louisa Thomas of The New Yorker for joining us this week. Thanks, Louisa. Thanks so much for having me. For Joel Anderson, I'm Stephan Fatsis. Remember Zelmo Beatty and Horace Clark. And thanks for listening.